Welcome. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a hematologist oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. In my professional life, I see patients, I teach trainees, and I do research in healthcare policy. This is Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and you're listening to Season 3. On this week's episode, we got Robert Freudenthal. Dr. Freudenthal is a psychiatrist, and he is a thoughtful commenter on SARS-CoV-2 policy from the UK. You won't want to miss this discussion. You know, normally every week you hear me say, if you're a fan of this show, go support us on Patreon and get access to the slides. I got something new to say this time. I think the good old days are over. We're living in a unique time where people are very happy to extinguish voices and ideas that they deem unfit for consumption. And so I personally have gone on Patreon. I've supported a number of people who I listen to, the podcast that I love, and I'm encouraging you to do the same. The only way we can combat this growing force of illiberalism is to support with our dollar bills podcast we enjoy. So that's my plug. I'm back in plenary session, and I'm joined via Zoom by Dr. Robert Freudenthal. Dr. Freudenthal is a psychiatry registrar in the UK. He works in London. He's in his penultimate year of training, and he offers a very interesting perspective on the COVID pandemic. Dr. Freudenthal, it's a pleasure to have you here on the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. I have, um, you know, had a great deal of admiration for your tweets and your thoughts over the last few months. Um, and I'm glad I finally was able to pin you down and be able to talk to you about them. So thanks so much for doing this. Now, I wonder if by way of background, I might sort of give listeners a sense of where you're coming from on this issue. Um, you know, we talked a little bit before we started recording. Um, you're somebody who, I think you're like me, you're somebody who identifies on the political left. Um, you have many progressive values. Um, and you are also someone who is interested in the role of the state and the powers of the state. I wonder if you might talk about that a little bit. Um, even before COVID-19, where did you find yourself on the political spectrum? Um, how did you think about the role of government in the lives of people um, and, and, and that sort of thing? Yeah. So, yeah, I'll say a few things about that. I mean, um, first of all, just to say that the pandemic and the response to the pandemic has been a huge learning curve for me, like I think it has for lots of people. Right. In terms of, um, I think sometimes you really need a crisis to really figure out what your values are and what your politics are. So it's, it's been quite helpful in thinking about that. In terms of where I sit, I mean, prior to um, the pandemic, I would, and, and, and still do, I very much consider myself on the progressive left. I'm a big believer in the power of government and the power of groups for social good and for change. But I am also well aware of the um, issues and difficulties with power imbalances and power relations and that power needs to be safeguarded. So we need to be thinking about where, where the power is, who holds that power and how is that safeguarded. And this plays out in medicine as well, of course. And I think as a psychiatrist, this is a particularly pertinent issue for psychiatry. I think it is true in all areas of medicine, but in psychiatry it's more obvious. So um, working on an inpatient unit, which I do a couple of days a week, we look after patients who are detained um, in the UK under the Mental Health Act. And um, it's something I think a lot about, about how um, healthcare and uh, government and power and legislation interacts with one another 
in the lives of our patients and the, the people that we interact with. I think that's a great that's a great introduction because um, it's been a long time since I've spent my time on the psychiatry rotation, but I spent uh, a bit of time there when I was a student, and I was struck by one thing that psychiatry has a uh, a very uh, important power, which is the power um, to to hold someone against their volition if that person meets a certain set of criteria, if they're deemed to be um, uh, lacking capacity, um, if they are deemed to be a threat to themselves or to others, an imminent threat, and and that is a that is a power that society bestows upon your profession. It's a power that you know I don't have as an oncologist. I can't detain anyone. Um, and as a podcaster, I certainly can't get people to listen to this show. No, it's just, no, of course, we don't have that power in so many walks of life. Um, the police has that, have that power, I think, to some degree. I mean, I'm, I don't know exactly, but I understand that I guess they could detain people for certain reasons. Um, there are checks and balances on that power. Psychiatry has that, um, ability and there are checks and balances on that because my brief exposure to psychiatry was if you were to detain someone in such a manner against their their willful consent um, for one of these aforementioned reasons, like they lack capacity or something like that, um, that a second psychiatrist would have to provide an independent judgment within a period of time for that decision to be upheld. And so there was a system in place like that. I wonder if you might talk about those kind of calls you make as a psychiatrist. Are there moments where um, a patient is is saying, you know, I want to go, I want to go home. It's none of your concern what I do. And you're saying, well, actually, I regret to inform you that in this case, it is it is our concern and, and we have this power. Yes, yeah, that, that, that's something that happens all the time, you know, every day, pretty much, that you're working in an inpatient unit, that, that will happen. And I suppose... Um, sort of th thinking about the power that uh, doctors and particularly psychiatrists have in detaining people. I think it's, re it's really important to hold on to that it's both um, a, a positive, um, coming from a place of uh, positive, you know, trying to provide healthcare to people that need it and protecting people's safety and the safety around them. That's a positive thing. Mm -hmm. But it can also act as a as a um, as a way of perpetrating various injustices in society, so it's not just a benign power. And I think we re it's really important to hold on to that. So, um, in the UK context, and I'm sure this is replicated in loads of uh, societies around the world, the there's a disproportionate detention of black men, particularly young black men, in the mental health system. And once they're in the mental health system, then there's disproportionate rates of seclusion and of restraint. Of, uh, of young black men in particular. So this power, although it's coming from a benign place of, um, of providing healthcare, do, can also um, function in difficult ways. And then in terms of on an individual basis, um, yeah, so it's some very important safeguards in detaining somebody, which obviously are going to be country specific, but also um, related to that is it's, it's expected that if you detain somebody for their uh, health and in a way that then, you know, they don't agree with, then it is expected that there's going to be some pushback from the patient. I think it'd be unreasonable, you know, you'd be living in a fantasy world if you thought right. you could detain somebody and they would just sort of get on with it and, yes. and be okay. With it. Yeah. And that perspective, I think, gives you I mean, I think I think those are the two the two. I mean, there are undoubtedly more things you bring to the table, but I think those are the two preconditions. I mean, you're somebody who's politically liberal. You believe in the the power of governments when well intentioned and when well working to improve the lives of average people and make their lives better than they were 
perhaps a generation ago. You're also somebody who recognizes that power is a double-edged sword and it should be wielded responsibly and it can um, and 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 it needs some checks and balances and some buy-in. And, and, and so that's how we approach COVID-19. I guess one of the things that strikes me about um, I think your your views on issues, which is different than I would say the prevailing view on Twitter. Um, and there are a few differences that I, I wish to highlight, and I'll see if you agree or disagree if there are, in fact, differences. I would say that um, Twitter, I think, a number of surveys show that it is, in fact, politically left of center. It's, it's far politically left of center. In fact, it's probably close to where I reside on the political spectrum, um, actually. Um, however, when it comes to SARS-CoV-2, I think there are a number of um, prominent and frequently tweeted and pushed policies that I believe are, are incredibly regressive um, that are antithetical to, I think, traditional progressive values um, that are really sort of talked about unquestioningly. And I'll just give one example. One example is um, the idea that um, uh, it's not a, I mean, this is literally what somebody said, which is that um, um, it isn't a bad virus that's killing us. It's bad choices or bad people or something. And, and somebody said something very similar, that it isn't um, the virus, it's, uh, it's people who don't believe in masks that are killing us. And I guess I would say a couple things. One is, I mean, um, when you have a viral pandemic spreading through a civilization, um, one open question is, to what degree is that um, in the hands of human beings to control? I mean, to some degree, I believe it is our choices that make shape it. But, you know, there there are, um, to some degree, it's outside of our control. And actually, I have an essay coming soon where I'm going to try to probe this issue. But the second question is, even if you were to believe that it is largely, you know, uh, 85% of the variance and outcomes is due to your choices, um, is shame, um, fear, um, um, humiliation, uh, um, public um, flogging, is that the way to actually get people to do what you think is best? Um, and, and, and I have always felt that as somebody on the political left, that, that, that's just not a, that's not a, that's not a, a baton we wield. If we see a problem in society, sure, to some degree, it may be the individual choices of the individual actors, but we also have some moment where we say, you know what, let's think beyond it. What were all the structural barriers in place that led to this? And you know what, let's ameliorate those structural barriers because you know what, that might make this, um, a better and more sustainable solution in eliminating the outcome we care about. And, and so that's, that's one difference. And I think you're somebody who, who recognizes this. Maybe we'll just talk about this for a minute and then I'll point out to some other areas that I think we'll. Yeah. 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 yeah thanks for bringing it up. Yeah. I mean, I, th I would say that, 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 um, you know, across the sort of the conversation around this, there's, there's been a sort of superficial sort of looking at, um, somebody, um, is choosing to not wear a mask or it mm -hmm. has a belief around maybe a conspiracy theory belief around, um, vaccines or about doctors or whatever. And yeah. it's been, um, just sort of dis dismissed or ridiculed without trying to think, you know, where do these beliefs come from and where um, and, and how to sort of understand them. And, um, and I actually come at this again from uh, sort of a bit of a psychiatric lens, actually, which is that the, the way that I think about and I see this playing out in psychiatry as well, which is that when somebody um, who's mentally unwell, for example, has an unusual belief um, or a difficult behavior, for example, somebody um, so for example, somebody with who might have a delusional belief, you know, it's you you can either view it as just being a random product of a biological illness, or you can think, well, maybe it's out and it's also telling us something about that person, about what's happening in society. So if we see lots of people who, for example, are choosing not to wear masks, then 
yeah, sure, we could just ridicule them or whatever. But it's going to be much more fruitful to think, where is that coming from? Is it mistrust? Is it about alienation? Is it about um, not feeling connected with medicine and healthcare more generally? You, you know, and that just um, trying to understand and get, I guess, just get to that sort of deeper level is always, in my view, going to be um, a more meaningful way of engaging with people and trying to enact and affect behavioral change. And then the thing about the fear, you know, um, right from the start, I was really worried about how how the whole approach just seemed to be around uh, getting people frightened and scared of uh, their actions and other people's actions. And, you know, we know that it's easy, relatively easy to sort of get people very fearful. It's much, much, much harder to bring it down again. And, you know, from the beginning, I was worried about, you know, what's it's likely that um, the fear of um, COVID and getting sick is going to uh, long live, you know, outlast the actual pandemic. I'm sure it will do. And I think in order to de-escalate that fear, you need um, trust and leadership. You need strong community structures. You need these containing things in our lives and, and that they're missing at the moment. So that's been, been a big sort of big worry for me. And then also go, going along with that fear um, is this, you know, we're sort of being asked um, to think, to treat other humans as though they're a threat to our lives. If they stand too close to you, they might be, they might be threatening to us. That's quite a paranoid way to be living. Um, and I don't think it's very, very conducive to a healthy society. Um, and I'll, I'll say one more thing yeah. about it, it, it yeah. is, which is also that, that I, I, I do think there is, you know, there are obviously really complex ethical issues um, around this. You know, so some people might say, well, if you don't wear a mask, if someone's not wearing a mask, um, they're killing somebody else. Or if they've, um, you know, not following all the rules and, and somehow they're killing other people. And this is something I, I think about a bit, uh, again, in a psychiatric context, which is around, um, you know, we have an obligation to not be negligent human beings. You know, we have an obligation to take care over um, our behaviour and, um, uh, you know, just try to sort of do the right thing. That is not the same thing as if we have a slip in our behaviour and someone else becomes infected and, and if they die or someone else gets very sick, that's not the same thing as killing that person. You know, that's just human beings living through a pandemic. So there's the two things, you know, we, we of course we do have a duty to um, be to careful. Others, yes. Yeah. We, we have an ethical duty to be careful, but if we slip up or other people slip up or, or um, we're just humans and live out our needs, and um, people get sick, that is just being human and living through a pandemic. That is not being a murderer. I, I agree wholeheartedly. I mean, I'll just say a couple things on this that, I mean, I, I, I think I might have said before in a different forum. Um, one is um, the same liberal who will say that the person who's not wearing a mask is killing someone and that they are the bad person and they murder blood on their hands is the same person when they actually meet someone who has killed somebody is willing to say is willing to say things like, um, you know, although this person committed this crime, we shall not forget. We should not forget. This person was abused as a child. This person had no upward opportunity. They had no role models in their life. They, had, they went hungry many nights. They were, they were beaten. No one cared for them. No one educated them. They joined a gang because the only sense of community. And then ultimately, they ended up committing a murder at the age of 22. Yes. Did they commit a crime? Yes. However, they're also a product of that upbringing. And the same kid, if you had put in a different home, maybe it wouldn't have happened. And so, yes, maybe we should have rules about this crime. But maybe we should also think about all the structural injustices that led this kid to this moment. That's, that's the attitude that I believe in. 
I mean, I mean, yeah. just okay. And that same person on the mask person, they don't see this mask person as. This is somebody who was born in the deep south. This is somebody who was born in a region where all the factories left. Um, their father lost their job. Their mother has no upward mobility. Um, many years they felt as if politicians made promises and never delivered. And then one year this guy comes, this smooth talker, this con man, and told them that the reason you are suffering is because of the other. It's because of these people coming, taking your jobs. That's why you're suffering. So this person joined the group where they felt included. And then this person felt like, you know, the mask doesn't work because this person modeled it for them, and this person doesn't take it seriously. Um, the same, you know, if anything, it, it, I mean, there's a lot of analogy between the person who became joined a gang and the person who, you know, and I mean, it's, it's a series of structural failures too. And sure, to some degree, they're being on the margin, you know, not doing, I think, a considerate thing for other people. But, but surely you should extend some of the same compassion you extend to the gang member, to this person as well. I, 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 I mean... That's just my view, I, I guess. Yeah. 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 No, I agree. And also, I think there's a sort of lack of um, lack of understanding, or even um, even ignorance, actually, about um, human behaviour, and also how these structural inequalities play out on our behaviour. So, um, I mean, to give an example, um, you know, most of us who are um, have limited our social contacts. Um, and who are in the professional class, you know, we are having Zoom calls. We are um, having Zoom quizzes. Maybe we'll be log logging on to courses on Zoom and yeah. doing things, those things. But a lot of um, people um, do not have Wi-Fi. You yes. know, they may rely yes. on um, data. On the, a lot of people rely on data from their mobile phone um, on a pay-as-you-go to um, access uh, the internet. That is expensive. You know, for it, it, mobile phone packages are very regressive. You know, if you have a contract, you pretty much have unlimited uh, data. If you're on pay as you go, you don't. Right. So you right. you just would not be able to afford the Zoom calls and the, that contact. So what are we asking people just to literally completely isolate themselves for, for months on end? No, of, of course, no one's going to be able to do that. So then we're surprised when people are disinterested in the rules or don't, don't follow them, you know, but whilst we are, you know, happily having our Zoom calls, you know. And, and I mean, so I, I, I think you, you're, you're hitting on it. I just to push it a little bit further. I mean, it's much easier to follow the rules when you have money. I mean, of course it is. You, you have a bigger house. You have more space. You have a bigger yard. You can have people in the backyard for drinks and stand 20 feet apart. Uh, I can't do that. I don't have a yard. Um, you know, you, um, you can have Zoom calls. You can be crystal clear clarity. You can, people in, in households where there are, I don't know, many, many people in the household, they can all have their own rooms. They can have their own space. They can close the door. Um, you know, they can get food delivered. They can get uh, all these services. But if you don't have money, it's a lot harder. Um, and so when somebody says, you know, six people are having picnic in the park and drinking and they get a picture from an angle where they look like they're close, you know, you can always get the angle. They always look like they're close. And then they put them on Twitter and say, look at these sons of bitches and why they're called they're called they're leading to the whole plague i mean i think it's it's sick i mean I, I it comes from a place of fear and anxiety and it's not a rational response um to anything it doesn't help anything yeah and there's a, there's a disconnect between you know I, i'm i'm really fortunate in that so um as well as working working on an inpatient ward i work in the crisis team yeah. uh, mental health crisis team and it's all all home visits so two two days a week i, I, I do all home visits in the borough and we'll see see everybody who's in a mental health crisis and you, you know you get a sense that um that people is many people are living lives where it's just that the, the reality of their lives is not connected with the government legislation it's just not 
possible to um, go into lockdown and never stay at home and only go out once a day when you live in one room with two kids and it's a bed set. And it's just not a thing that's possible to do. So, um, and, and then, of course, there's all the issues around um, how much people understand the rules, you know, uh, language and all, all these sorts of other things. And, and I'm sort of increasingly becoming concerned that when you have a society where the government legislation is just a complete, like, you know, departure from the everyday lives of people, that's just a fractured society. It's not good governance. It's not rooted in um, our lives. It's not, um, you know, reflective of, of the actual things that people can do. And it just causes that friction, just causes um, anxiety, alienation, mental illness. You know, it's just a, it's not a healthy place to be, really. Yeah. I want to push on this one more direction. Um, I, th- I saw somebody tweet something to the effect of, you know, um, if you believe that people should have the freedom and rights to make some choices that increase pandemic risk, um, then guess what? You shouldn't support drunk driving legislation because drunk driving legislation is us taking away freedoms to protect other people. So if we can do it there for drunk driving, we can take away the freedoms for um, commerce and travel and and meeting up um, to protect people from a pandemic spread. And I thought to myself, I mean, I I agree that in both situations, society is saying we're going to sacrifice something for the greater good. But I I also wanted to say, um, do you really think that somebody's right to get plastered and get behind a wheel and drive is the same human desire as someone's desire to hug their own mother. You really think those are the same thing or someone's desire to educate their child. Um, and, and, and to me, it bothers me a great deal. If we're conflating these things, um, a rule that says you can't have seven drinks and get behind the wheel. Which, by the way, you know, let's be honest, is actually, I don't know, very selectively enforced. I mean, it's not rigorously enforced. For my, my knowledge of it is I don't see them doing a lot of enforcement. But it is a rule when they catch somebody who is totally trashed, they're going to put him. I don't know. I don't know what the pun, I don't even know what the punishment is, actually, to be honest with you. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't engage in the activity. And there are alternatives. You can take an Uber. I mean, you can, t- you can take a taxi. Um, you can take a bus. Um, the, versus somebody who's saying, I haven't seen my 80 year old mother for a year and I want to see them. And that's a violation of the rules. And you want to say those two things are the same thing, the same moral spiritual thing. I, I find it troubling. I, f- I feel like we're lost. Where's our compass? Yeah, you know, I agree. And and it's, it all gets sort of um, meshed up. You know, so you see people say, Oh, people just complaining about their freedoms. Um, don't, can't they just wear a mask? And it's like, okay, you, you know, um, wearing a mask isn't that big an imposition for most people. Right. But that is not the same thing as saying you're not allowed to see your, your mum or your partner or you're not allowed to have a new sexual relationship or, or you know, for months and months on end. You know, they're just not the same thing. It's, it's just completely yeah, different. It's not the same thing. <laughs> I don't know what to say. It's not the same thing. Um, and I think, you know, we don't have, we, we, we have, um, you know, various... You know, from my perspective, I think this whole thing should have been uh, done within a framework of, of sort of civil liberties and civil, you know, and, and, and various rights. And and we we of course we have a right um, to life. We don't have a right to live without risk. You know, we don't have that right. I don't have the right to say that um, every day I'm not going to be exposed to any risk at all. Again, this this also ties in with psychiatry. You know, we if I detained every single patient that said that they 
may possibly harm someone or harm themselves, then we would be taming everybody. That's just not the world that we live in. Um, so I think that the right to life, which is of course completely, you know, something that needs protecting, gets conflated with the right to live without risk. Yes. You know, yeah, we don't, we don't have that right. And one more on this um, point. Um, you know, I recently was talking to an, an older person. This person is in their 80s. Okay, it's an older person. And this person is not in English as the first language speaker. And this person was born in another place, another country and moved to this country. And this person had plans to meet up with like teenage grandchildren. And these teenage grandchildren, I don't know, but I get, I got the, the, the feeling that they weren't exactly sticklers for the rules. You know, I don't know what these kids are up to. They're probably meeting, you know, their kids are kids be kids. You know, what can you, what can you do? You know, I mean, you can shame them on Twitter, but I mean, what else can you, what can you do? I don't know. They're, they're doing this. Okay. So then I, you know, I was talking to this, this elderly, um, um, person and I said, you know, I try, I tried to strike a balanced position on this issue. And I would say, having looked at the outcomes of SARS-CoV-2 in someone of your age, um, I would be seriously concerned and I would, um, I'm not sure you should go, you know, meet up with these, these kids. I mean, you know, you're, you're, you're very vulnerable. I mean, the, I mean, that's a serious risk. I mean, if you were to get COVID, we're talking maybe one in four um, chance of death, you know, and this person who didn't speak um, English extremely fluently told me um, th they were sort of, they squinted at me and said, don't you worry about that. And I said, what do you mean? Don't you, what do you mean? I don't, I don't worry about that. I said, don't you worry. Don't you worry about that. And then I said, I mean, I mean, I have to, I'm like, I'm a doctor, you know, I, and this is, you know, uh, I'm, I'm worried for you. I'm worried, you know. And they say, don't worry, don't worry. And they say, no. And they just shook their head at me. Okay, um, that was the interaction. What am I to do? I mean, I don't know. I feel like I did my part. You know, I pointed out that there is a risk, but this is an 85-year-old person, and I've also been raised to respect my elders. Um, and I'm not the... I, I'm not judge jury. I mean, what, what, am, what, what, you know, how, what would you say to such a person? I know what, you know, I think there are people on Twitter who would say very drastic things. I should have detained that person. I should have, you know, used the force the, all the force I have to make this person not do this. Um, yeah. Is that my right? Uh, is that my duty? What do you think? Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting to hear that because for one thing, it's really nice to hear that short anecdote because I feel that the voices of um, older people are completely uh, missing for most of the debate. Completely missing. And of course, they're going to be as diverse as everyone else. And some will um, absolutely be, you know, full for a full lockdown, you know, criminalizing everything. And there'll be others that see it completely differently, but that they've not been centered. And again, this comes from the, um, but that's a progressive thing where we really think about, oh, you know, we shouldn't just talk about groups that are vulnerable or affected. We should center their voices. That's been completely missing. In my <laughs> right. yeah. Yeah. I, you know, another thing is the care homes. Um, um, there's another word for them in the States. Uh, yeah. Assisted, Nurse, living, assisted living nursing homes. Yes. Assisted living places, yeah. Care homes sort of places. You know, they... Um, they, uh, you know, so, you know, lots of them have had visitors banned for, for months and months and months. And I don't think I've ever like not once seen a um, care home resident be interviewed in, in a ma major sort of media organization about what, what the experience is like for them not being able to see, see visitors. Um, so, you know, I think it's, it's, not, it's not good. It's not good. If I mean, some of these people have their, their, their remaining life is measured on the order of like one year, two years. Um, yeah. And, and your, the imposition is like half of your remaining life. You don't get to see anybody. Um, 
I, I will just say one thing on this point. Um, one of the things I wrote that I felt I still feel very strongly about is that if people are vaccinated, they can they can take greater risks than people who are not vaccinated. I I still feel that that is the right answer. Um, yeah. and, you know, I, I got some flack for it. Um, one of those risks is um, to have the, I, I know this is to be true. This is somebody I know that. Um, colleague of a friend of a friend was basically the the person in the care facility has had and recovered from covid both of the people who want to visit that person have had vaccinations for covid and the system will not allow them to visit and i was thinking like my god i mean at some point we have to say like this rule yeah. makes no sense this you're really taking away something from human beings and and everyone in this picture is, has had or been vaccinated for covid they're not I actually think the person who had COVID in nursing home got COVID and then was vaccinated. They got both. Uh, that's a that's an extra boost. And I mean, nothing is. I mean, I don't know what to say. I think it's. Uh, I I don't know what to say. I, I I'm really flabbergasted. I mean, I'm just totally flabbergasted when I see something like this. I'm shocked. I'm morally hurt. Um, and I'm, I'm and I really wonder about all the people complicit in enforcing this rule. Like, who's got the courage to enforce such a horrible rule? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, um, I mean, it's against sort of good medicine, obviously, you know, where we weigh up risks and benefits. It's, you know, it's got this sort of feeling of sort of, um, bit of, you know, tyranny of bureaucracy, you know, the bureaucratic inhumanity sort of thing. And then, you know, the other thing which I've been thinking about is, you know, of course, it's a difficult issue. They're the most vulnerable group to COVID, not the people that just had COVID and been vaccinated, but, um, you know, the, the group like, group at, uh, in, a, in a wider sense. But underlying it all, there's also been this, um, sort of, uh, a, a sort of denialist fantasy where we don't talk about death, where we think that yeah. people yeah. in there, uh, who live in a care home can just wait for a year to see their relatives. You know, they can't. They can't. Their lives are short. Um, they, uh, some will not last a year, or in a year they may have more significant cognitive impairment or, 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 or whatever. You know, that at that age, you know, at, it, it, not everybody can just put their lives on hold. Um, and it's just this sort of fantasy, I guess, that we can, that we can do that, that we can, that we can just expect everybody just to, just to postpone everything, you know, and it doesn't, it doesn't answer the question because of course it's, you know, it's a really difficult issue about visits in institutional settings, but, um, yeah, but it's, uh, yeah, I do think some, some principles, you know, could be followed, but, you know, the most important one is centering, centering the voices of the people. Yeah. I think you're, I think you make a great point that, I mean, and what is Twitter but a bunch of young people telling you what young people think? Because that's who's on Twitter. I mean, how many people who are really in that most... I don't know any 80-year-olds who are tweeting up a storm. No, Fauci, he's an 80-year-old, but he's not on Twitter. Um, but you're right. I think that the dialogue is very... It, it, it speaks on behalf. And the other thing that I hate to say is... Um, the views around risk and my parents' generation is not the same as our generation. I mean, something has shifted in the zeitgeist, in the in the in the generational perception of risk. This eighty-plus-year-old immigrant has a very different sense that they were conveying to me with a very dismissive, <laughs> like, "Don't you worry about that, buddy." Um, which I actually I found rather sweet and humorous, even though I, you know, I had my I said what I said wanted to say that you know there's a one in four chance if you get COVID you're not going to make it. Um, but this person told me they didn't really care. Um, okay, but I wanted to shift gears for a second. Um, I wanted to talk to you about the the role of the state. 
and and what the state means in Western democracy. Um, mm. And and I think um, it's 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 easy. I mean, I, I th- well, I think there's a few things to say. One, um, people. I don't think people who. Well, I guess I should put my, all my cards on the table. I have an article that's going to be coming out tomorrow, and it says like um, risk redu- harm reduction or zero COVID. And I basically make the argument you'll see it tomorrow, um, that zero COVID, I think, is it's great for the places that have achieved it or close to achieve it. Sure, I'd love to live there. To keep achieving it, they're going to have to put walls up and and regulate people coming in and out, and they can decide whether or not they believe that's um, worth it to them, whether or not that liberty is is worth it. Um, but it's not, I don't believe it's realistic in the United States. I just don't think it would happen. And I was reading what zero COVID people say to get to U.S., which has 100,000 new diagnoses a day, to get them to zero COVID. What will it take? And they're like, basically, you need a very hard lockdown. I was like, a hard lockdown? I was like, do you know what's going on in this country? There, there's 40%. We can't even lock down the fucking Capitol building. They're fucking, they're, you can't even lock down the one building. One building. You can't lock that down. You want to lock his whole thing down? What do you think is going to happen? It's going to blow up in your face. It's going to blow up in your face. There are people who don't take it. There are states they don't take it seriously. They don't want to do anything. You think you're going to lock those people down hard? How are you going to do it? Put tanks in the street? Shoot them if they come out? What are you going to do when they come to protest? You're going to shoot? You have to shoot them because otherwise they're going to get protest. And then my other point about I'm, I'm being a little dramatic, but maybe I'm not being dramatic. My other point about lockdown is lockdown is not like other interventions. It's only as good as the least compliant cohort in it. And if there's a faction of the people who are not going to participate in it, the virus will spread in that faction and all y'all can lock down all you want. The willing can lock down, but it won't do anything if 40 percent of people don't participate at all. And so anyway, I talk about this and I just think it's it's just not. I mean, I don't even know. I mean, Wuhan, China can do it because that is a that is a totalitarian state. Are you crazy? It's a totalitarian. They can shut the whole place down, and they can shoot you if you violate. Um, we can't do that in the in the Western in the West. We can't do that in democracy. Um, so, I mean, if you really acknowledge that, I think harm reduction is the only path forward. Um, anyway, so this is part, the first part of my that what I wanted to say, and the next point I want to say is what we have done. We, I mean, uh, many people have participated in, in what we've done, I mean, by egging it on, I think, on social media, et cetera. Um, it is leading to the worst, I mean, inequality that you're ever going to see in your life. It's going to come. And this inequality makes for a political st- situation that was already shitty, and it's going to be absolute shit. I mean, it, when you when you make poor people poorer, and you take away their education, and you and you hold them up, and then you, and you don't give them anything, there's no stimulus checks going. I mean, they are not going to um, like it. And when they go to vote, they're going to be voting for the despot the tyrants, the demagogues, um, the conmen. They're going to vote for those people. Um, and you're, you're breeding the ground for, I think, what to come will be a very unstable political situation. Anyway, these are just, I mean, some of the things that I'm worried about along with yeah. the virus. I wonder what your thoughts are on this broader issue of the power of the state and politics and where we're going. Yeah, I mean, a few, a few things to, to think about that. I mean, one is that I think the debate has been way, way too narrow. It's been framed as um, a medical intervention, really, with lots of sort of um, quite, a, quite, a, quite a few sort of doctors and epidemiologists and so on pushing it uh, as a medical intervention. Um, and it's sort of like lockdown or no lockdown. Um, but very little debate on that, or even interest or curiosity about how lockdown is constituted, what's the democratic process, what's the role of the justice system, what's the role of borders, all these things are just sort of like ignored or put to one side. Um, I mean, and then, um, 
yeah, and and, and I, I would sort of like to see whenever anyone um, sort of suggests lockdown, I always sort of want two things to be acknowledged, which are, which very rarely are. One is that um, enforcement of a lockdown, if you're using a criminal justice system to institute a lockdown, which many countries have, enforcement will always, always, 100% will be disproportionately enforced in the people the state has the most control over. That's just how it works. You have a piece of, the people that the police are able to control will be the ones that are locked down the hardest. So for most, in most countries, that will be a sort of middle class, wealthier people, doctors, you know, free to go out to work. Most live in their own homes. Well, no one's probably going to be checking on how many times a day they leave the house. But if you live in an over police community where the police are down, are breathing down the back of your neck anyway, or even more so if you're in an institution of some type, a mental health facility, a care home, anything like that, you will be completely locked down. And that um, disparity in restriction on liberty is just so profoundly unethical in my view. And then the other thing is that there are always, always going to be people that are beyond the bureaucratic reach of the state. So you could put in as generous an economic package as you like, but there will always be people that are not able to access that. Either um, they're undocumented perhaps, or they have a learning need or a mental health difficulty, which means they're not able to navigate that bureaucracy or, um, or for whatever reason or have cognitive impairments but there will always be people that live beyond the bureaucratic reach who will be destitute so you have to acknowledge those those two things i think and they're, they're mostly left sort of unacknowledged yes. and then there's the whole um you know I, it's just surprising to me you know there's there's just whole political histories of how states are organized, how people function, how our power is distributed, the value of borders and what they mean. And it's just sort of like breezily overlooked. I, I don't really have any other, any other way to describe it. And I mean, in the UK, we have a, re and in the US, you know, in the UK, we have this really stark example. That everyone's like, okay, you get what, well, not everybody, but people promoting zero COVID say, you know, UK is an island state, just like New Zealand and Australia. So we should have been able to lock down. And, I, and I'm sort of thinking, have you not been paying attention to news for the last three years about Northern Ireland and Brexit? You know, there is a land border. Where would you put the border? You know, there's been wars have been fought over that. In the US um, was rightly, you know, so much concern around putting a board, building a wall yeah, between right. the US and Mexico. And now it's what well, that's something that um, some progressive people want. I mean, it's it's hard to get your head around. And then I, I have to say for this, I found Twitter helpful because I, you know, when the first lockdown happened, um, I just had this, you know, whether it was necessary or not, I had a sense of abject horror. I was, it was just the thought of police being on the street, controlling, potentially controlling how many times a day you leave your house, borders being closed. You know, I um, have uh, come from uh, a family where immigration and crossing borders was essential for survival. And the thought of just borders being able to just suddenly be thrown up, it just freaked me out. And um, it, and I felt quite alone, actually, you know, like, do other people not feel the same or other people just very relaxed about this? Um, and it's actually has been helpful on Twitter, sort of connecting with other people that are similarly have, have similar sort of progressive politics, but also have this sort of horror with, you know, border closures. So, um, you know, it's been, been helpful from, from that point of view. But yeah, it's quite, it's quite something, um, this sort of, um, I, I know I see it's sort of medical overreach, you know, just, uh, not really 
being interested in the role of a criminal justice system or even thinking much about it. I don't know. Do you, I don't know how, how to make no, sense I, of it. No, I, I feel I agree with everything you said. It's really resonating. Um, if something is done in the name of public health, it feels mm. like you can get away with things that you couldn't do in the name of other things, you know? You can get away with border closures. You can get away with some of these policies. Um, I don't know. I guess I would say that in addition to everything you said, there's an added dimension that I think makes the problem even more challenging, which is that we are not even allowed to talk about it, I believe. I mean, I, I, will, I will make your arg my argument why. There are... Um, there have been a few people who offered alternative points of view about how the pandemic is going, how it, we ought to respond to it, and there is a fierce effort to get them to stop talking, not to engage with them, to hear them, to engage in some dialogue. Um, and, and some of these things, you know, I, I, I see a middle ground. I see, I see where there are, you know, I don't agree with everyone who's speaking, um, but I don't like that we that that the answer is to demonize and silence and you know i've written a bunch of things on censoring and that i mean the things that jump in my mind are um you know carl hennigan he doesn't believe that masks uh are proven to have benefit that's his point of view i i personally don't um care that much to be honest with you about the evidence because i right now i'm wearing pants when i go out here i'm gonna wear pants why do I wear pants? Has anyone ever proven that wearing pants makes it better for anyone? Have you ever proven that? No, they don't prove that pants make things better, but I'm happy to participate in the pants wearing as a common courtesy so people don't have to see my scrawny legs. Similarly, at a time of pandemic spread, when it's coming out of your beak, I'm happy to cover up my beak and prevent it from spreading. And actually, I, I do like the anonymity because I'm a misanthrope at heart, so I like the fact that no one... No, I actually think, I mean, it cuts both ways, obviously. It's also sometimes you, do, you miss it. Anyway, I'm happy to do it. But Carl Hannigan thinks it's not that good. Okay. And he thinks that, you know, there's no randomized data that supports in that kind of thing. He has his point of view. He's, I think, a consistent guy for many years. He likes randomized data. So, he, you know, this doesn't, may not have it. It's a precautionary principle and other reasons, but it may not have the type of data that he likes. And so then the Danish mask study comes out and it's a null study. And he writes that the masks do not significantly reduce spread. And that's one interpretation. I dis, you know, I have my own interpretation. I wrote my article where they say, you know, it fails to find a 50% reduction, but it's not powered to find smaller. So I have a different way of looking at it. And other people have a different way of looking at it altogether. We're all entitled to that. However, his way is labeled fake news by Facebook and is removed. You know, it's labeled fake news. The, it, we have decided he is wrong. John Yonidi's video where he says the IFR of this is in the same quote ballpark as flu, whatever a ballpark is that's deleted by face by YouTube. Um, these aren't just random people. You know, these are people who have been in the academy for a long time. They do not have a track record of saying um, the kinds of things that would get a consult from you. You know, they, I mean, they're, they're real people. They just have different points of view. I think another point of view that has been heavily demonized is the point of view that these restrictions are not worth it. I actually don't fall in that camp. I am genuinely don't know if the benefit harm of the restrictions is positive, negative. I, I think I wrote something on that recently. Like, I genuinely don't know. I'm, I, I do think however you implement them, there has to be checks and balances. There has to be some way to gauge what people want and what they're willing to do. I don't think it's um, all, quote, follow the science. It's not all follow the science. This is never, this isn't, science is not a guide to life, especially policies. Policies is always what people want. And if everybody in a society is like this 80 year old person saying don't you worry about that you know then then you really are not justified in a lockdown now if this person is a minority of you and most people think it is reasonable and there's some participatory way to demonstrate that then i think you are entitled i mean this is part of the political question 
Um, anyway, I, I've been rambling, but I guess what I want to say to your point is, yes, I agree with everything you said. I have felt the same frustration. Every day when I go on Twitter, I get more, my blood pressure goes up because I feel like the loudest voices are the ones saying all the shit that I don't like to listen to because it's fucking crazy. I mean, they're really out of control on their, the power of people to shape lives of others and confident that it's guaranteed to work and everyone who disagrees with them is spreading disinformation and they want to shut them up. I mean, it really troubles me. Um, the last, oh, there's one last thing I wanted to say, but I'm sorry, I'm losing my train of thought. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll, uh, It'll come back to me, but um, I'll I'll let you say what you what what you were. Thinking yeah, about. you know, I, I had sort of two things to respond to that. I mean, I mean, one is um, from a scientific perspective, um, and you know, this is also good medicine. I think it's to be really transparent about uncertainty, <clears throat> and so if you um, claim certainty when it's not there, yes. which is a case for quite a lot of these interventions. Oh, yes. It, oh, no, it, it, you know, some people will um, lap it up, and what, um, maybe that's a derogatory word. Some people will um, will find that helpful and say, yes, I'll follow this intervention because people are telling me it's certain. And other people will look at it, realize there's a bit of uncertainty, and then go to conspiracy theories if we're not transparent. Yeah, or so, be you know, really I've, angry I've, with you, very angry, because there's actually, to be honest with you, that's my, if you tell me you're more certain about something than you actually are, I get really angry. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. I, I just want you to be honest with me. And you, because I think you think I'm an idiot. I mean, that's how I feel. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so, you know, so I think it's, so when when you, when you see people making claims about interventions where which isn't backed up by the evidence, you know where or making the the claims seem much stronger than it is, and people people start doing research and then you know and then which which is welcome, um, but it it can feed uh, if we're not transparent or open, it feeds conspiracy theories in my view. And the other thing about the power relations is I've seen some people, um, some you know very eminent. Um, Public health and doctors, other scientists, sort of say, "Oh, people are saying I'm um, that I'm, I'm just trying to control them. That's just conspiracy theory. You know, I'm not trying to control people. Like these people are crazy. Why are they saying that?" And uh, and I think that shows a real um, uh, sort of lack of understanding of power relations. Which is, it's not about whether you as an individual are purposefully going out like controlling people like they're in a video game. Like, no, of course, you know, you're just trying to do your well-intentioned job but it's about looking at the system within which you live and within within which you work and are, and your work is organized and thinking about does do the policies that you're writing enact controls other other people and yes they do they enact absolutely huge control and so if you have that control and you have that power over people's lives then at the very least um you need to acknowledge it acknowledge it, it. yeah <laughs> You know, that's a start. And then follow all those other principles, you know, be transparent about it, reflect about it, have build and safeguards, get second opinions, don't shut shut the opposition down, expect pushback. You know, it's completely, do people really think you can shut down a society and not, not have pushback? No, that would be, you know, that would be... Uh, I don't know what my word is. Just terrifying. You know, that, it's important yeah. that you know that that's, that's one of the things I saw somebody tweet that he, he, this person said. Um, it, the biggest shock to me about this pandemic is that professors at Oxford, Stanford, and Harvard disagree with what scientists say saves lives. And I want to say that that's not a surprise. That's an, an inevitability. You have a situation that has never happened in a hundred years. You enact measures that to my knowledge have never been enacted in human history in any pandemic. These kinds of measures have never been enacted in part because people did not know all the things we know today. You know, they may be actually beneficial measures, um, but also in part because nobody had the, the power to do such a thing. 
Um, um, I mean, historically, I mean, they enacted all sorts of things in the plagues, all different, but they never at this sort of broad scale within three weeks in March, every place on earth shuts down. I mean, that I don't think has ever happened in human history. Um, and so, and then your question is, you're surprised that some faction of educated people view these trade-offs differently. That's a ridiculous. Of course, they were going to view it differently. No matter what you did, if you did the opposite, they would have. They would all be easy to be because human beings are bound to, in our wonderful diversity, to view these things fundamentally differently. I, uh, here's the point I wanted to make to you. I, I want to pick your brain on the masks. Um, there's a first order what the masks have done, which is, you know, I, as I say, I, I have one right here. Um, and I'm going to wear it in a minute when I have to step out. Um, I think that they are a very, as you say, it's not, a, it's no it's not much skin off my back to wear. Very similar to wearing pants. I know there's some study that said it doesn't lower my O2 sat. Well, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't too worried about it lowering my O2 sat, to be honest with you. Um, uh, but it, it doesn't do that. Okay. Um, it is what it is, you know. However, the moment you brought this into the picture, you have a visible symbol of how you view the pandemic and the response. It's visible. I see it. I know. You see it. You know. Um, it's different in, in, in this country. I used to live in Portland. I live in San Francisco. I drove down. And what I noticed was when I was leaving Portland, it was five, it was like 5.30 in the morning and this guy was biking up this hill. There wasn't a person for a thousand feet within sight and he had on a mask and he was, it was soggy with sweat and he was huffing and puffing. That's his commitment to curb pandemic spread. I go five miles out of the city, I'm in Trump Pence country and they ain't no mask in sight and it was like Mardi Gras when I stopped to get some gas. And then I got closer to the Bay Area and as I get closer, I know I'm nearing the city limits when I see more masks coming. Okay, so it's a visible symbol. Um, people, well-intentioned people have gravitated to a visi visible symbol, and I would, I don't even know, 15% of health policy Twitter was wear a mask, wear a damn mask, just wear a mask, just wear a mask. And what I believe it did, my mask is red, just like the red cape can distract the bull, the red mask has distracted liberal public health experts to focus inordinate amount of time on this one visible intervention. And what have we forgotten? We've forgotten that the people who are dying of SARS-CoV-2 in this country, they're not average people. They're more likely to be line cooks. They're more likely to be Hispanic. They're more likely to be black. They're more likely to be in, 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 in tighter quarters. So all the time you spent telling people to wear your damn mask, you could have been telling politicians, give people some support. Let's open up all the apartment, all the empty office space, and let's turn it into some places to house quarantine. So people who are sick at work, they can go quarantine for 10 days. Let's pay them to quarantine. Let's incentivize them if they're really fevering to go into this building and quarantine. Um, you could have paid people stimulus checks. You could have provided food. You could have provided outreach. You could have actually um, invested. You could have been, instead of saying wear a damn mask, you could say let's have universal broadband Wi-Fi so every kid can actually use the laptop. You could have fought for those things, but you fought for the thing. They, they tricked you into thinking that this was the thing to fight for. It was visible. It's nat it was a visible symbol, and you fell, and you fell for it. Not that, not that it's a wrong thing, but it shouldn't have taken that much energy. The energy you sunk into it was disproportionate, and that energy could have been spent on actual progressive policy that actually provides resources to people who need it. And that, to me, is the second order thinking of the mask, is that it distracted you in a way, and, and, it, and, and, and people on the other side who didn't want to invest in those other things all they had to do was thumb their nose at the mask and you 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 chase them like the bull chasing the red cape i wonder what your thoughts yeah. are yeah i mean i mean i haven't i mean it's first of all you know a mask is 
you know, I have, obviously I'm, I'm aware I'm not coming at this from a you know, public health professional perspective, but the way I see it is, you know, a mask is, is one intervention among others. Yes. And that, that's, that, that's how it should be viewed. It's, it's obviously not as a, an intervention that touches the structural drivers of the pandemic, the things you mentioned, economic and racial inequality and housing policy and so on. Obviously it doesn't touch those things. I think, um, it's, um, my sort of lay sort of non-public health opinion is, is is i sort of assume it's only going to help a certain amount because we know that the riskiest transmission is in hospitals and in households you know in hospitals we're definitely going to wear masks and most people don't wear masks at home so you know it's it, it, it doesn't have a hundred percent efficacy yes it is we yeah. don't i don't know what the percentage is but it's not going to be yeah exactly right i think that's another thing yeah. people miss so, yeah it's not hundred percent yeah and i feel that if you are um um once a, um, a a public health measure becomes identified with a particular political group, yes. I think it sort of loses its yeah. it loses its efficacy because it becomes you know for for, these, for public health measures to work, obviously you need high uptake across the society, and it, it, if it comes too closely identified with a particular political grouping, then it's going to, it's going to um, cause problems. And then from from a sort of medical perspective, I sort of I don't know whether I'm just um, too um, I don't know what the word is sort of too flexible with how I approach medical problems but if I have a patient or and you know public health is is clinical work but at a group level you know if I have if I have a patient who doesn't want to do something doesn't want to take a medication for example I don't just sort of flog them until they take it <laughs> it never works are you crazy yeah it never yeah. I mean you, know, the, you try yeah. and find other solutions and workarounds and think okay well this won't work but let's modify your risk in this other way you know and I just would have thought that from a public health perspective that would be the thing you know okay this intervention isn't working for this group let's try and understand why you know can we try and support them and if it's not then you know let's focus on the other like super important things you know and probably driving driving things a bit more. Um, but I haven't, you know, I've, I've actually purposefully, maybe I shouldn't have even commented here, because I've, I've purposefully tried not to comment too much about masks, because I just feel, you know, it's it's a polarised yeah, debate. Yeah, it is an unhealthy way, you know. Yeah. I feel like a polarised debate around, I don't know, borders or supporting people to isolate, you know, these are things which are battles worth fighting. Yes, masks yes, yes. And, and you know whether how nuanced or not our mask policy is i just feel like it's just a distraction it's a distraction you know? it was it was all it's always a distraction yeah i mean i only yeah. discuss it because i think it is visible symbol and it i think it too we talked about it too much that i mean my yes. whole point, yeah. my whole point is we talked about it too much and we didn't talk about things that actually do matter and i think yeah. i think it was west pegden who actually tweeted something like um um, for for the there's probably like news organizations ran ten thousand polls about whether or not you'll wear it and when you'll wear it and we wear it here and there that you wear one you wear two you wear three you wear four uh, you know I do not like them no more I mean no I don't know they ran all these polls and they and he said how many polls did they run one question if you have a fever and if you have a job can you stay home and and actually make ends meet. I don't think they ran a, I don't even know if they ran that one poll, not one poll. If you feel sick and you are cooking a restaurant, do you have to go to work? Yes, no. No, all the polls were, they fixated on it, which I think is ridiculous. But I, I mean, I think you're right. It became polarized and I don't know. I, I think one last thing to say, because I know our time is up and I have to run, but I wanted to say this about what you're saying about politicking. The, the, the thing about Twitter is 
You can only get so many followers when you talk about certain subjects. If you talk about psychiatry, there'll be a certain size you get. I talk about oncology, certain size. You talk about biomedicine, broadly certain size. If you want to level up to the big level, you got to talk about just naked politics, Trump and Biden and Theresa May, and you got to talk about political figures. That's the way to get to the biggest level. And then if you want to talk public health, you got to talk about social distancing and, and masks, and you got to talk about um, precautions, and you got to talk about quarantine and these things. And my... I will say, I believe that almost every single person has succumbed to this temptation is their Twitter feeds are a blend of public health and, mm -hmm. and, and just total politics that mm -hmm. Trump said this on Tuesday and it's wrong. Biden's doing this and that's good. And you should do this and we should do this. And I think that, you know, they are, they are losing so much of the audience because, and, and, I, and what I want to say is two things. Like one, I think it does damage to the public health to make it wedded to politics. I think like you say, the moment it becomes wedded, it's like, it's like, it's a horrible situation. And I also think the environment has incentivized them to do it. They don't see how they're being a pawn in Twitter's game because the moment they start going back and forth on tweeting such a topics, the followers start blowing up, the retweets blow up, and they're getting they're getting a reinforcement. It's like a classical conditioning experiment. They're being classically yeah. conditioned to wed these things together, and they do not see that that does societal damage. Okay, yeah. I'll give you the last word, yeah. Yeah, well, no, I just, from my perspective, I really do believe, um, maybe naively, I believe in the power of, of groups to regulate each other and to regulate one another. Um, In-person groups, that is. In-person <laughs> groups, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know that's not obviously not safe or, or always safe or possible, but, but you know, I do really, really believe that. Oh, and if not, you know, in person, then there are ways of having groups uh, online and uh, and groups where we are a bit different to each other in the workplaces and other societal structures where groups meet. We, we moderate each other. We, we um, improve our thinking and test our ideas. Um, Twitter, you know, doesn't function in that way. It's not a, a um, and many of the other sort of, and our interactions have been reduced mostly to sort of one to one yeah. as a result of the the, the the sort of restrictions. And so we're not getting that, and we're not able to participate in the community organisations at the moment in the usual way. So so we're not getting that sort of group modulation effect. So I feel that it's the sort of lockdown society and which is why i really feel the restrictions should be for as limited a period as possible because a lockdown society predisposes us to some of these more sort of rabbit hole extremist type thinking you know where you just escalate escalate and escalate and we're all vulnerable i'm sure i'm vulnerable you know we're all vulnerable to it in different ways um but we do we you know we need each other we need we need groups we need to modulate our uh, we need to meet we need to discuss these things and and yeah we, Getting a number of retweets doesn't count as dis discussing and thinking through an idea, I'm afraid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think, um, well, um, I want to thank you for your time and I want to thank you for your tweets because um, I think on a number of occasions you articulated something that I've been feeling and having difficulty articulating. I guess, um, I mean, even pre-COVID, if I were to put my cards on the table, I'm not in the, I've just never been in the in the moralizing business of like, telling people what they should or shouldn't do in their lives with absolute certainty, because the truth is I don't know. And I guess I would say COVID has shown me a lot of things I don't know. I don't know which of the 100, you know, probably, I said in a recent article, like 10,000 different interventions, which ones made a difference and where and under what circumstances and how much, I don't know. Um, which were the behaviors that people could have reasonably averted 
And which are the behaviors that, you know what, people have to be people to some degree. We can't just turn off and lay in bed all day. I mean, there's some balancing act. Which were the ones we could have done differently and which were the ones that we really had to sate fundamental human needs? Um, I don't know the answer. Um, and so I don't like to judge. And I, and I also think the other thing is people have different appetites. We never, we never even like talk about like li- literally you go eat with somebody and two people will eat different amounts of food. Similarly, yeah. people diff- have different appetites for dating, for sex, for um, spending time with parents, for spending time with colleagues, for chatting. And if, if we are starting judging people for um, – quote unquote, not being good, you know, following the rules for these different things. It's just like judging somebody who eats a little bit more than someone else. It's, it's sick. It's just a, it's just a sick thing. And then the last thing I'd say is to, to, there must be some fraction of what the virus was going to do. It was just going to do. It were dominoes that already falling, like nothing we could have done would have some amount of it. I mean, I, I believe that to be the case. And in an essay, I'll argue, and I think it'll take a decade before we actually quantify what was that amount? 15%, 20%. I don't know, but it'll be some amount. It was going to do that. Um, and, and, and I think having some recognition that, you know, that some of this is stochastic, that's random. And some of this was inevitable. I mean, I think takes the edge off. And I think, I don't know, in all the great plagues when I was, I'm reading a little history books, I, I, one of the things people do is they always believe it was something somebody did. You know, it's easy for human beings to say it was your immorality that led to this problem. It was you, it was that baker, it was that person. We're just so good at that. And, um, I don't know, I told somebody recently there should be, um, there should be a story of like aliens park outside the earth. I said, we're going to invade you guys. We're going to invade you. And then before they even invade, like people will just tear themselves apart, like just debating. Yes, like, and then and then this guy sent me um, a Twilight Zone episode that was almost essentially this exact premise made like, I don't know, 50 years ago. An older gentleman. Um, not that old, if you're listening. <laughs> but um, anyway. So uh, anyway, so I just want to say I want to thank you for your thoughts and commentary, and I, I I'll, I'll let you give you any closing thoughts. Yeah, no, just to, yeah, no, thank you from for for um, inviting inviting me to talk. Really, it's been a pleasure to chat with you and to to think think a bit more about some of these issues. You know, it's you know as I said at the beginning, it's it's been obviously it's been horrendous in so many ways, and the catastrophic loss of life. I mean, it's awful, awful. Um, but, I think it does sometimes take a crisis to sort of help you think through your thoughts and um, understand your values and, and ethics and things. And um, as you say, I've never been in the business of moralizing. I've always, there is a, there is a tendency, there is a, a, that aspect of medicine, of how medicine is practiced, which, mm-hmm. which can lead to that. Um, and um, I've never sort of been drawn to that. But this is sort of, it's, it's in some ways it's been helpful to talk things through with with you and other people and you know think think about these ideas so yeah thank you thank you robert Freudenthal. and people should follow you for um some some respite in the sea of in the sea of twitter well thanks so much for doing this you've been listening to season three of plenary session plenary session is produced by kiana klosner music by ian straley and audrey tran The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.